0: So, what's your style? Do you have a style? What's your style like? Some people really like bright colors like yellow. Some people prefer a red. Some people want, you know, a nice, uh, I think they're called neutral colors or earthy tones. Some people are really flashy and stylish. Some people don't have any style at all other than how their wives dress them. That'd be me. She doesn't actually dress me, but she knows my routines enough to know that I'm just going to pick whatever shirt's in the front. So she, she does dress me by putting shirts in the front. She doesn't have to tell me if she wants me to wear it. She just puts it there. What does your style communicate to the world about who you are? Do you think about that? The other day, we were in Phoenix for a wedding. Now, we're originally from the Front Range, so the Front Range, you know, consists of anything I think, I call the Front Range, anything that's on the east side of the Rocky Mountains that, like, nestles up against the Rocky Mountains, so Cheyenne, Colorado Springs, Denver, and it kind of has its own culture, Uh, and that's very much our culture. Jen and I have a culture that's kind of Front Range-ish, which is very similar with a Flagstaff culture, so when we moved here, I didn't realize that there is a difference in culture between Flagstaff and Phoenix. But there is definitely a, a Phoenician culture, isn't there? So we got, we, we were invited to a wedding in Phoenix and we dressed up for a Dhoni Park style wedding. So, so we were definitely, I think we were dressed up. I felt dressed up. Jen felt dressed up. But we showed up to this wedding and the groom, whom we had never met, looked at us and he said, you're the Flagstaff family. We definitely weren't dressed up like the rest of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians definitely have their own culture, and, and they have their own dress, which is communicating something to the world about how they want to be seen, how they want people to think about them. And we in Flagstaff, and in particular in Donie Park, we have another way of dress, which we are trying to communicate to the world something about ourselves, right? It is for this reason that dressing communicates something about yourself, that Paul uses it as an illustration about our life in Christ. And that's what we'll study today as we dig into our series, Better Together, a study through Ephesians. Now, if you'll remember, we walked through the first three chapters, which are full of robust theology. And we we studied this idea that we we live out our theology. So how you live is based upon your theology. How, how you live is based on what you really think about who God is and who you are. And then in chapter 4, he switches gears and he gets into the application. So much of what we want to do is we want to skip the theology and get into the application. Because we really like behavior modification. Just tell me how I'm supposed to live. And then we think when we run into problems, when we have deep hurts, we think, oh, I can just power through this. I know that I'm not supposed to turn towards drugs. I know I'm not supposed to steal. I know I'm not supposed to do all these behaviors. And I'm just going to force myself to not do them. And then we ultimately fail. And what does that bring about? It brings about shame. And we skip the first three chapters, which is all about theology. But it is the theology that drives our behavior. So if we really want to change our behavior, We need to go back to those first three chapters and memorize them and write them on our hearts. And that's one of the reasons why as we continue going through this, we're just going to continue reviewing this theology that we find in chapter 1, that we are chosen in Him. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are called chosen. God has chosen you. And then he says that we have an inheritance, and that He is uniting all things together in Christ. And then we get to chapter 2, and we see who we were and who we are. Who we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of God's great love for us, He has made us alive together with Him. And then in, in verse 10, He calls us His workmanship, and that word for workmanship there is original masterpiece. You are God's original artwork. Let that theology drive your behavior for a second. Even when you mess up, even when you are in utter despair, God calls you his original masterpiece. So we see that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were lost, but God has made us alive together with him, and he calls us his. Then we also get into the second part of chapter 2 which is all about how there is a division, that humanity is divided. We are constantly in this legalistic battle trying to prove we are better than the others. And so there, we do a great job of dividing ourselves up into groups. And then we learn that God is in the process of uniting humanity. He is bringing us together. He has knocked down the barriers that divide us all. And He is making us one in Him. And then in chapter 3, He begins to explain this mystery that is how He is uniting us in Him. And He ends chapter 3 with a prayer. And in this prayer, He gives us steps to spiritual maturity that we would live our lives according to the theology. And as we do that, we would let Christ dwell in our hearts. And we learn that that dwell there, it doesn't mean rent out. We're not letting God rent out a section of our heart, but we are letting Him have complete and total ownership of our heart. If He wants to change the paint colors, let Him change the paint colors. And as we do that, we grow in who He has called us to be. We grow and we are rooted and grounded in His love. And He strengthens us to understand His his love that surpasses our knowledge. And we grow and mature in the position that he has called us, that he has put us in. And that brings us to chapter 4 where we get into that application. So he's saying, the application side gets to, okay, God has made the church united. He has united us together. And then he says, now we need to maintain the unity. And how do we maintain the unity? We do it through humility gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity. Then he gives us the examples of unity through Scripture. 7 through 16, he begins to explain that unity is not conformity nor uniformity, but God has created each uniquely, and he has gifted us each uniquely. But we are to come together using our unique individual talents and skills to, to propel the church forward in maturing as a body, to grow together into who He has called who He has called us individually and corporately as a congregation to be. One of the big takeaways from this is that we need to pursue one another. How can there be oneness among us as a church if we do not know each other? God is calling you to get to know others in this church, to build relationships with them. Too often we see Christians doing it alone, and they come to church, and they study the Bible, and that is great, but then they leave, and they live life by themselves for the rest of the week. And they wonder why they're not maturing and growing in Christ. And a big part of it is because you are neglecting the relationships that God has called you to have with other believers. So I want to encourage you to pursue other believers in this church. Ask them to coffee or lunch or whatever your hobby is. Maybe you're really into coffee right now. We've got some people that are they—they um, they actually build roasters and they they roast some amazing coffee. Pursue them, get to know them. Whatever your hobby is, invite them along as well. And it is through that that God begins to build us and mature us and grow us. And then He switches gears just slightly in verse 17, and that is where we're going to pick up. In verse 17, he begins to change gears. So he's been explaining how together we are better together because as we are together, we we m- make each other mature and grow into who he has called us to be individually and who he has called us to be as a church. And then he starts to say, he switches gears and he starts to say, here's what you need to do for growth and maturity. And that first section, so 25 through 32, he's, is going to be a whole nother section and it's going to be like, this is how you should be walking. This is how you begin to mature. And the very first step of how you begin to mature is stop acting like an immature person. That's the first thing he's going to command us to do. Quit acting like a little baby. Quit acting like an immature, unbelieving person. So he says, now. So that is the marker of result. Because God has unified us, because God has made us better together and has made us alive together with him, and he has unified us so that we would be mature in this new person, because of this, now do this. So now I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. Now this is a command for us. You must no longer walk, meaning no longer move, no longer act like the Gentiles. Now what's really interesting here is he's writing a letter to a church that is made up of mostly Gentiles. So what does he mean no longer act like the Gentiles? They're like, hey, we can't eat pork anymore. I really like my bacon. That's not what he's getting at. The whole point is that he has made a new creation out of the two. So if you look back to chapter 2, that, that divi- dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile, and he says there's no longer this dividing wall, but God has made one new person in Christ. So you you were a gentile, you no longer are as if you were a gentile. You're no longer alienated from God as a gentile would have been, but you are now a new creation. So no longer act like you were. Essentially what he's saying is no longer act like an unbelieving person. That's what he's the point he's really getting at here. You were once an unbelieving person, a person that didn't know Christ. You know Christ now. So act like you know Christ. Walk like you know Christ. Live a life that knows Christ. And then he goes ahead and he gives us the four problems that unbelievers run into. And the first one is uh, in the futility of their mind. So you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. This term futility means purposelessness or meaninglessness. Without God. There is no purpose and no meaning to life. Conversely, with God, no matter what your circumstance is, there is purpose and there is meaning to your life. There is a fantastic pastor uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska. He has retired now. Uh, but I love to listen. I, I go back and I listen to his old sermons, and I've heard him speak, and I've been able to to talk with him uh, on several different occasions. His father wrote hymns. He was a hymn writer until a debilitating disease struck him, and for the rest of his father's life, he was bedridden, and in constant. Pain. Now, without God, knowing that the rest of your life is going to be nothing but laying in a bed in pain, what would you want to do? There's no purpose to that. All I'm doing is suffering. So you've got two solutions without God. Numb the pain any way you know how or die and that's where we start to see physician assisted suicide creep into our culture because you can't get out and enjoy life and without god that's the that is the final purpose of life is enjoyment and if you can't do that you might as well die but this man knew god and in between the aches and the pains he would still take time to praise God. Because he knew that even in the midst of his all, his life still had purpose, his life still had meaning, and he could still make an impact on those he knew for Christ. No matter what your circumstance is, no matter where you are at in life, no matter how much pain you are going through. Your life still has purpose and meaning because there is a Creator. And He has created you as His original masterpiece with purpose and meaning. But without God, there is no purpose. There is no meaning. So you live a life of futility. And you constantly search for purpose. You constantly search for meaning in all kinds of different places. And so we see people chasing after the wind thinking that something will finally fulfill them, and when they finally have it, they realize that it never has fulfilled them. And it could be in any kind of thing. We see it a lot with our society. Career. You chase a career, and you think that once you make it in this career, your life will finally be fulfilled, and you finally get that career that you've always wanted, and it disappoints. It could be in marriage. You think that that one girl or that one guy is going to fulfill you. Young people, I speak specifically to you, that one guy and that one girl will not fulfill you, no matter how much you think they will. What will happen is you will realize that that one person is full of issues as well. How often do we see someone that Idolizes someone else, and they think, if only I had her, my life, my heart would be full. And then they get her and realize that she's kind of a jerk. Could be vice versa. He's only a jerk. We see this all the time in chasing purpose and chasing meaning. And when you finally get it, you realize that it's not going to fulfill you. The only thing that truly fulfills is God. And so the Gentiles walk with a purposelessness, with meaninglessness. And he says they are darkened in their understanding. So this is the next problem that they have. They are darkened in their understanding. So because they don't know god and they have no purpose they actually can't understand what what the bible says god has laid out more basic moral moral principles a basic foundation now this doesn't mean that they that they can't this doesn't mean that unbelievers can't be moral unbelievers can be moral in fact i've known some unbelievers that are actually more moral than christians i know that's not exactly what it means but it means that they don't understand the basic underlying principles of morality. That there is a creator, and he created with basic morality. So they can't quite understand, and oftentimes we run into an issue where we think that we can argue someone into belief. But they are darkened. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have good apologetics. We shouldn't have, I'm not saying we shouldn't have good arguments for why we believe. We're actually commanded in Peter to uh have a, in a reason why we believe what we believe. So we're commanded to have good apologetics. We're commanded to have good reasons to believe why we believe. But that argument alone will never actually change someone. So this week it was interesting. uh My son really wanted to do his Awana assignment. So, Uh, I was like, all right, let's do it. What are they going to have us do? And the Awana assignment was to go into a room and make funny faces at each other. And then we were supposed to take turns making funny faces and describing those funny faces. And then we had to turn out the light. And the room was totally black. And we were supposed to do the same exercise. And the whole point was, when the lights are out, you can't see You can't even comprehend that your dad is making a funny face at you, let alone describe that funny face. And that's the point that Paul is getting at right here, that they are darkened in their understanding they can't even understand. So no matter how many great arguments you present, they're not going to fully understand. Sometimes we beat our heads against the wall with arguments But that argument alone cannot convince. There has to be something more. There has to be a Holy Spirit working in their heart. And so sometimes the better thing you can do for an unbeliever, instead of arguing with them, is to pray for them that the Holy Spirit would work in their heart to change their heart. Because their problem isn't their problem is that they don't understand. But their problem isn't that they don't they haven't heard the right argument yet even if the right argument hits them. They still won't understand it. So that's the second problem they have. The third problem that they have is that they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So there's a lot going on here. Because they don't understand, they are separated from God, but it is more than just ignorance. It is also the hardness of their hearts. They don't want to understand. So they've been separated from the life that God has cr- has given them because they have a hardened heart. And, and so they're, they're ignorant. They don't understand. But it's not only just that. It's that they don't want to understand because they have hardened their heart. And I, I think we can kind of relate to that to a certain extent because every single one of us has been in a position where we have purposely hardened our heart. feels good to be mad sometimes, doesn't it? When someone's really irking you and you just want to give in, and, and even if they're apologizing, you're like, I want to hold this sin over you because I want to be mad at you right now and I want to give in to my desire and I want to give in to my anger and so I'm going to just be mad and I'm going to harden my heart right now. And that's actually trying to usurp God's power. When we hold grudges, when we give in to our anger like that, we are actually usurping God's power. It is God who will hold it against them. It is God who will have the final judgment against them. But when we hold back forgiveness, and I'm not saying that you have to be reconciled to, them, but when you hold back forgiveness and you hold this sin against them, you are actually usurping God's authority. And it feels good, doesn't it? Because that's our—that's the sin we all struggle with the most, is our desire to be God. So hardening your heart reveals a heart that is not submitting to God. And unbelievers have rejected God, not only because they don't understand, but they choose not to understand. Disbelief is always a result of rebellion, not confusion. I want to say that again because it's so important for us to understand. Disbelief is always a result of rebellion, not confusion. The greatest example we have of that is actually Christ. Throughout the entire Old Testament, there were prophecies about what Christ would do, about what the Messiah, when the Messiah comes on scene, what was he going to do? And then Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he do? He does all of those signs so that they would believe. Every single sign that Jesus does is a sign to authenticate his claim that he is the Messiah. And what do the Pharisees do? They're not confused. The Pharisees knew the Old Testament probably better than you and I do. They knew their scriptures inside and out. They spent years memorizing it. They knew the signs that would come with the Messiah. They were not confused about what Jesus was doing. They were not confused about his signs. And yet, what do they do? They say, you must be doing those by Satan's hand. They weren't confused, but they didn't want him as their Messiah. Disbelief is a result of a hard heart, not of a confusion. But Part of the problem is they don't understand. The next part is that they don't even want to understand. And that brings us to the fourth problem that they have. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So because of the hardness of their hearts, their hearts have become calloused. So their heart is hard, so it creates a callous, which in turn makes more of a hard heart. The idea is that they don't know because they don't want to know. And sometimes you explain the gospel to someone and they start to bring up questions. And you answer their question and what do they do? They come up with another question or they change the topic altogether because they just don't want to know. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a guy who was going through a divorce and he was heartbroken. I can't tell you how many times he cried during this conversation. And so when I brought the gospel into the conversation, he said, oh yeah, I believe in a higher power. I was like, okay, I got some apologetics. Here we go. I'm going to bring it now. And so we started talking about Christ. Oh, yeah, I think God, he works through Christ and all these other ones. And I said, okay, but but let's talk about Christ. Because if Christ rose from the dead, we have to really consider what he thinks. We have to really consider what his claim was. Because his, his rising from the dead authenticates everything that he claims. And if he claims that he's the only way, well, we've got to wrestle with that. And he looks at me and he says, don't you ever wish you had a time machine? I mean, how cool would that be? He didn't even want to wrestle with. It. His heart had become hard, and it had become calloused. Here he is going through this horribly emotional time of his life, where he's pouring out his heart to me, and I've got something that can that can heal his heart. He doesn't want anything to do with it. So this hardening, the, the futility and the lack of understanding and the, the hardness of heart and the callousness, they all lead up to this sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So sensuality here means no restraint. Oftentimes we, uh, we just m- make it equal to sexuality, but that's not exactly what it means here. It means no restraint. And it means to find purpose and or so to find purpose and meaning in one's desires. So giving in to whatever desire you may have. This may be a sexual desire, it may be anger, it may be laziness, it may be food, it may be just wanting to turn to something that will numb the absolute pain you are in right now. But that's that sensuality, that no restraint on your desires. Letting your desire have control over you. And not only have they let their desire have control over them, but they have also become greedy for every kind of impurity. And this is trying to find purpose and meaning in sex. So this impurity here has a real emphasis on sex. So this does include sensuality, but here the emphasis is on sex and it is giving up the purpose of sex. God gave sex as a gift to create an intimate bond between a husband and a wife. And without God, we have a tendency to twist sex. So any use of sex outside of this purpose to bond a husband and a wife is impurity. Now, when we hear that, we often think of the extremes, and that's true. It, it does include the extremes, but it can also include sex within the marriage covenant, but with wrong intents. It could include a husband just using his wife, or a wife just using her husband. That would also fall in line here with greed and for every kind of impurity. And what are they doing? They're chasing after the wind because nothing in life can truly fulfill other than God. And so when there is no God that that can fulfill your life, you begin to chase for everything. And, And he really lines this out. And the point is that sin and passions and desires are never satisfied. I like the way that uh, one theologian, one commentary put it. Their ignorance and hard-heartedness are certainly culpable, but they are also pitiable. You see, the temptation as we read this list is to make the unbelievers enemies. We see what they're doing, we see that it's wrong, we see that they're using and abusing other people, and we try to make them as the enemies who are trying to fight against God, but I don't think that's what Paul means it to be. So their ignorance and hard-heartedness are certainly culpable, but they're also pitiable. They are suffering, but they are unaware of why they suffer. And their hopelessness has left them with nothing to live for but their own greed. Their greed has in turn produced in them all kinds of bizarre behavior. So when I think about my friend who was going through a divorce, I see this play out where he has pursued so many different things to fulfill his life. And yet the very thing that can give him purpose and meaning he doesn't even want. And yet he's so lost that he doesn't even know How lost he is. But, this is a contrasting uh, conjunction and wow, is it a huge contrast, right? There's this lost in futility and understanding and greed and sensuality, but that is not the way you learn Christ. So you were living in futility. We all have to come to that We all have to to realize that we we were living in futility, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Christ is a subject to be studied. We learned about Christ. You put your faith and trust in Christ, and yet there is still more to explore in Christ. And not only is he the subject to be studied, but assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Christ. So not only is he the subject to be studied, but the truth is actually found in him. Jesus is the light. So when we think about making funny faces at each other in the dark and not having the ability to see each other's funny faces, let alone describe the funny face, Jesus is the light switch that gets flipped on, and all of a sudden, my kid understands what a goofball I am. And he can describe it. So we can actually understand morality and moral principles when we come to know Christ. He is the truth. So that's not what you, not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. So now he gives us three things that we're supposed to do to mature in this new position that Christ has put us in and the first one is to put off your old self the old man died that person that was walking in the futility of their mind that had no hope that had no purpose that person is gone put it off this term put off is it actually is an illustration to taking off your clothes when you've got sewage on your clothes who's if you if you've got Uh, A baby, you know that sometimes that baby can get a little bit messy as you change diapers, right? And what happens sometimes? Some of that gets on your clothes, and you don't just go the rest of your day with that on your clothing. What do you do? You take that clothing off. You say, nope, it's time for something new and clean. And that's the way he's, he's comparing, or that's the illustration for our old way of life, our old way of thinking that life had no purpose, that life had no meaning that we could just give in to our desires, that we could be greedy for our desires. No, put that off. Take that off like it's a bad, soiled piece of clothing. But that's not all that he tells us. The next step is, uh, which belongs to your former manner of life, is corrupt, though deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So the next step is, after you take off that old soil clothing, that old way of thinking, be renewed in your mind. And how are you renewed in your mind? It is through the study and application of God's Word. It, and in particular, it goes back to those first three chapters. It's going back to studying the theology of who God is and who you are because of who He is. We want to jump to this to, to chapter 5 and we want to get down to the application point and that's how we need to live out the renewing of our mind. But we can't skip the theology. Renew your mind on who God is and who you are. Every day, remind yourself of that. But that's not the final step. The final step is and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And put on the new self. God has made you righteous, and he has made you holy. And so what he's used here is an illustration of changing your clothes to show us how we are supposed to put off the old life and put on the new life that God has given you. I think the best example of this is the story of Lazarus. If you're not familiar with the story of Lazarus, Lazarus was alive during Jesus' earthly ministry, and then he died. He died. Now, the Jews' custom was to dress them for burial within the first three days. So they were going to put on burial clothes within the first three days. By the fourth day, the body would start to decompose, and it would decompose so badly that it would stink. Well, Jesus shows up, and, and Lazarus is on the fourth day. They've sealed the tomb, so not only is he dead, but he's stinking dead. He reeks. And so when Jesus says, roll the stone away, they say, wait a second, he stinks. I think Jesus did this for a very particular reason, and that is so, it, so that there would be no doubt. It wouldn't be like he was just sleeping. Jesus is going to raise the stinking dead. And then Jesus calls Lazarus forth, and Lazarus comes forth, and what does he, Jesus tell him right off the bat? He says, take off your burial clothes. Lazarus was dressed in a dead man's clothes. And he says, put on a living clothes. Put on a living man's clothes. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us to do right here. That old way of thinking, that was the way you thought when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's time to take that off and put on this new way of thinking the theology that Paul has laid out in the first three chapters. And how do you do that? By the renewing of your mind. Reading, applying, and submitting to the authority of God's will. Gathering together as the saints. Reminding one another of the theology that Paul has laid out in the first three chapters, that you are a saint, you are an original artwork of God, and that you are to live as a saint, as an original artwork of God. So it's not the reading of the Word that causes you to live. Christ already did that. It is the reading of the Word that dresses you accordingly to the life that God has given you. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have dressed us or that you have given us a new life and you have given us the ability to address accordingly. That we don't have to be lost in futility and purposelessness and meaninglessness. That we don't have to be lost in with a lack of understanding that we can understand you and your basic moral principles. And that we can have a new life in You. And we pray that You would help us to turn towards Your Word, to read it, submit to it, and apply it. In Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate the encouragement to live a new man's life, not an old dead one. Well, stand with me and we'll close this morning. I am reminded when I sing